0: Welcome to the Thriving Wellness Podcast, where we encourage and empower everyone to live their lives up to their true potential and share valuable conversations that are translated into action steps for the lifestyle that makes you thrive. Here are your hosts, Ryan and AJ. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Thriving Wellness Podcast. Ryan here, and I'm really excited for today's show because in the past few years, there's been an explosion of popularity in health and food documentaries. And sadly, The ones that seem to be getting the most attention are pushing this vegan agenda and presenting so much false information, which is really misleading the public. My guest on today's show is Brian Sanders, a filmmaker who has been interviewing many of the leading health and nutrition experts for his feature-length documentary, Food Lies. He's also the host of the Peak Human podcast, which I've been absolutely loving, and I've been binging on many of his episodes the last several weeks. He graduated from UCLA with a degree in mechanical engineering and then turned to technology and sold an app company. He's used his technical background and love for fitness and nutrition to also work as a health coach and be the co-founder of the health and media and technology company, sapient. So Brian, welcome to the show, man.
1: Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to go into your backstory and kind of discuss what inspired you to embark on this mission to make this documentary.
1: Yeah. Well, it's been a couple of years in the making. It's not for the faint of heart. You know, you got to kind of know what you're getting into, (laughs) but uh, it's a real passion of mine. You know, I'm, I'm really glad to do it. I love it. I jump out of bed every morning. I just can't wait to try to push out this information, do podcasts like this, just any way I can put stuff out on social media to get this going and yeah, kind of get the right message out there. And it all started for me with my own health. I actually just posted a picture of my before and after kind of thing. And so I was just kind of like skinny fat, you know, not knowing what I was doing, trying to cut calories, trying to like jog for 45 minutes a day, didn't know what I was doing and it wasn't working. And then at the same time, this was five years ago, my parents had severe health problems. My, my dad actually passed away of cancer and my mom was in stage seven Alzheimer's. So she's, she's now unresponsive. So I'm here. I was 31 at the time, have no parents and my health wasn't great. And I just realized that we don't know anything. Right. You you look at this mainstream advice and they're just like, Oh, eat less, move more. And, you know, get your whole grains and, you know, all this kind of stuff Meat's bad. And I just, I, I had to get to the bottom of it. Basically, I was like, I need to figure this out. I started hearing about this ancestral health movement. You know, you got Mark Sisson and all these awesome people who have been doing it for a while. And I, and I read the book, Primal, Primal Blueprint. My friends were getting all these great benefits. And I kind of went down this rabbit hole and figured out a lot ever since, (laughs) a lot of contrary information to what I used to think.
0: Wow. That's an incredible backstory. Not that far off from my own. Um, Both Mm -hmm. my parents had cancer and uh, unfortunately my mom passed away uh, almost 10 years ago now. So I know what you kind of, it's a similar situation that really inspired me to take a deeper dive into health and nutrition. and see what's really going on. So as you've gone through this journey, it sounds like you were kind of following some mainstream advice, the whole eat less, exercise more, count your calories, do all this cardio, all this nonsense that's being pushed in the mainstream. So since you've embarked on this mission, what have been some of the biggest aha moments and big takeaways that you've really learned through interviewing all these experts? Mm.
1: Well, so many. I mean, I've, I've been so fortunate to talk to these amazing people. Like I've always looked up to these people and they have such great information and they I'm talking to like researchers and scientists, you know, people doing the, 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 at the forefront of this and figuring this stuff out, but I kind of boiled it down to four words for me is eat densely, move intensely. So that's the biggest thing that I've come away with is nutrient density, like eat nutrient dense foods, but then, and you can dive into these, all four of those words, you know, for hours, right? So the the, t- the high level is eat nutrient dense foods, which include a lot of animal foods, you know, vegetables, stuff like that. Like not low, you know, low sugar vegetables, not uh, the whole grains, like, you know, all these stuff that's at the base of our food pyramid. I mean, you could say, Oh yeah, carbs are bad. And yeah, I mean, they probably are bad for most people, but really carbs are just nutrient void, <laughs> the opposite of nutrient dense. Right. So uh, I, I really looked into all that stuff and then, the move intensely part is, yeah, like you said, this cardio stuff is, it It doesn't help. <clears throat> it helps to move, right? I want to say, yeah, anyone should move around as much as they can, but I don't think people doing endless cardio and, you know, really just like just white knuckling it, <laughs> you know, these people who just are like, hate it. I see these people all the time at the gym and they're just chugging along and for hours and they look miserable and I know they don't like it and they're still Overweight every time they come in. So, yeah, we can dive into t- tons more stuff, but that's the high level.
0: Yeah, I love that saying because it's spot on. You know, the nutrient density is where it's at. And then this high intensity interval training and doing some resistance training really goes so much further than the steady state cardio people are misled to believe. And it's uh, less mentally draining in a lot of ways than grinding it out for 45 minutes or an hour on a treadmill to just get it in, get it done. And you oftentimes do a far less work in total, but get better results. So I absolutely love that. So in terms of nutrient density, can you explain to the audience um some of the foods that you've identified to be at the top of that list?
1: Yeah. Well, I say people have all the different definitions of nutrient density. You know, there's one with a Joel Furman, like sort of a veget you know, vegan, vegetarian type of guy that he you know, does anything he wants. He basically wants to have meat at the bottom. So he you know. Can put saturated fat as a a penalty, but my my version of nutrient density, which I think is should be is pretty universal, is the amount of bioavailable essential amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins, and minerals, right? And so that basically means a lot of animal foods, right? So the the bioavailable part is big because you're not absorbing all the nutrients from black beans or uh, you know, you think they're all, oh, they're so protein rich and all oh, this wheat, it's so great. It's like, no, there's all these anti-nutrients in them. There's different things that block the absorption. There's, it's just, it's just not the same, right? It's like the animal foods have the vitamins and minerals and all these nutrients in the, in the form that we can use them in. So to me, you have to t- of course, have to take that in consideration. And this is also accepted by scientists, you know, it's accepted by everyone except for vegans, vegan doctors who, you know, make their own little versions. But this this equals nose to tail animal foods. It's shellfish are very nutrient dense. I eat uh, like mollusks, like oysters. I'll eat, um, yeah, like clams and shrimp and lobster. Like these, these different kinds of shellfish are good. But then beef, nose to tail, organ meats, uh, lamb, any kind of ruminant. Uh, I eat chicken and pork less. Uh, it's also not... I don't think rays as well, which is a whole other environmental story that we can go into later because I'm studying all these things for the film. So a lot of animal foods and yeah, some like low sugar, you know, fruits and vegetables stuff like that. If you want to fill in your diet with some of that stuff,
0: yeah, I love that you touched on that because uh, a lot of people don't realize that vegetables do have these anti nutrients. They have these plant defense systems that are chemicals that can cause digestive distress and can cause issues in our bodies. And while most vegetables are pretty good for for most people it's important to identify that there are issues with vegetables and that animal foods are more nutrient dense and easier to digest and oftentimes provide a superior form of nutrition Mm -hmm. now the thing you did touch on too is the nose to tail that's a huge caveat because I hate to see people just eating ribeye steaks all the time with this carnivore movement exploding. That's really what you get a lot of is just steak and eggs for breakfast and then a big ribeye for dinner. And they're lacking a lot of the other things that they need that you get through things like liver and heart and kidneys and bone broth and all the other parts of the animal that our ancestors would have eaten. So that's a huge, huge component. And is that something that you eat pretty regularly, organ meats and other parts?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and nose to tail, I forgot to mention fish too. I mean, I eat sardines a lot and that you get all the little bones in them and stuff like that. So that's again, nose to tail, you're eating all these different things. There's all these different nutrients in each organ. So some people don't really understand why you eat nose to tail. Well, well our ancestors did it instinctively. So that was pretty cool before they knew the science. But now we know the science and we know that there's, you know, there's this vitamin C and liver and of course all the vitamin A and, you know, other good things in it. But people just need to understand that there's a reason for it. There's different nutrients in it and there's different, uh, even things like say bone broth before I used to think, oh, why do people drink bone broth? Is this some kind of just fat or like, oh wow, that's like some like paleo fat or something. It's like, no, there's there's the, the collagens in it and there's like this different glycine and methionine. It's like if you're just eating all the muscle meats, you're getting too much methionine, right? And you want this ratio to be pretty equal. And so there is reasons for this. There's different nutrients and... I do it weekly. I make my own bone broth. I make my own, uh, I like make ground beef with liver in it. I have my own company actually called nose to tail, uh, where we sell grass finished meat and it comes with, uh, ground beef. That's all grass finished with the organs mixed in. So it has heart, liver, spleen, and kidney all mixed into the beef. So yeah, I mean, some people don't like the taste, so I think that's uh, a good way to kind of just mask it and and just, grind it up and get it in your ground beef
0: yeah that's a perfect way also making things like liver pate can make it more palatable oh, yeah. than just trying to saute up some liver because it can be a very strong flavor and the thing is a most american's palate has been so distorted through all the processed super palatable foods that when they taste real nutritional dense foods like liver like heart like organs they're very turned off by it. I found this in my practice. People are very, very slow to to be willing to even eat things like liver and heart. And so it's, it's important to understand the nutritional benefits of these and that they provide some of the most nutrient-dense calories that exist on the planet.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah just get used to it. Just know, I think it helps too if people realize how good it is for them. And then it's kind of plays that mental game with yourself and you learn to love it. So yeah, just keep trying it.
0: Yeah, your palate really does evolve. I love that. And so you did touch a little bit on some of the issues with uh, veganism. And this has been a huge topic that everyone seems to be talking about because while there's not a ton of vegans in number, you know, I think it accounts for about 2% of the population They're very loud in their opinions. They're extremely vocal and they have a a tendency to try and force their beliefs onto other people, which is not only annoying, but really just downright wrong. I mean, it's a very cult-like following. So what have you learned through your your interviews with experts on the vegan diet?
1: Yeah, well, I've talked to a lot of ex-vegans and I talked to some current vegans. I had a vegan on my podcast. I have a separate podcast I'm just starting called Sapien goes along with my company. And yeah, she came over. She was great. She actually came over in person from Las Vegas. She was in town and and I got to kind of understand their thinking, but she's one of these ones that don't try to push their agenda on other people. She's like a casual vegan and she's in the early stages, which plays into this, right? She's in the first year and she's an athlete. So she's burning lots of calories Mm -hmm. And so she can afford to eat all this nutrient-poor food. And, you know, that's my theory. For a lot of these people who are thriving, supposedly, on veganism for maybe the time being, it's like, okay, well, it's like these bodybuilder type, like Nimai Delgado or whatever his name is, and like the Rich Roll guy who does a lot of cycling or something. These people are burning like 5,000 calories a day or eating 5,000 calories of food so you can eat these nutrient-poor foods and still extract enough nutrition. But if you are a normal person and they're very focused, they have spreadsheets, they like know all the, you have a lot of money to do all this stuff. But if you're just a normal person, oh yeah, and they're eating all the whole foods and really good about it. So if you're a normal vegan You're not, you're eating, you're probably eating just vegan junk food, vegan processed foods. You're not tracking all your nutrients and getting tested and knowing your deficiencies. You're not getting enough B12 or fat soluble vitamins because you're not getting them from animal foods. So there's a whole host of problems. Oh, and you're not, you're not, you're going to probably gain weight if you're, you're, people either lose weight or gain weight. I've seen on veganism because they're either, they're eating so such nutrient poor foods that their body can't even thrive, right? They're, they end up losing weight and they're losing muscle or they're eating so much junk processed vegan foods that they're gaining weight, trying to get so many calories, but their body's just wanting more protein basically and they're not getting enough. So, okay. So really I break it down into like even looking at it at a, from an evolutionary sense. You can look at it from, Scientific sense and figure out why it's not right, and you can also look at it evolutionarily. So evolutionarily, these plant foods we've we've always eaten animal foods and plant foods, right? It's like we are we adapt, we survive, we catch as catch can, like that's how humans eat. And fallback, the, so so plant foods are always the fallback foods, right? So it's like when we couldn't get an animal, if something went wrong, when our environment failed us, we resorted to plant foods. So they're not bad right? They're just, they're there to help us survive in times when we couldn't get the real nutrition from animal fat and protein. So I'm really kind of (laughs) confused with this modern day vegan movement where you're avoiding all the most nutrient dense foods and you're trying to survive on our fallback foods, right? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And so the people who are doing okay, they're like, Oh, I'm vegetarian and I I eat a couple eggs a week and, or like, Oh yeah, I eat some oysters. Like I know some people who they're they're all plant-based and then they eat oysters and like, you know, little other things. Like, yeah, that's what's saving you, right? These are the nutrient dense foods that have so much B12 and and bioavailable iron and fat soluble vitamins that you're surviving. (laughs) So that's kind of, that's kind of my main points on that.
0: Yeah, it's so true. And like you mentioned, people can feel really good at first because maybe when they switch to a vegan diet, they are being more conscious and eating more whole foods, and they may have been eating even worse before then, but those nutritional deficiencies do catch up to you, and that's why I always think of it. I look at Weston Price's work. I uh, do some work with the Price Spot Nutrition Foundation here in San Diego, and he studied all of these primitive populations that were in perfect health and found not a single one would ever consider the idea of being a vegan and if you did have vegans let's say on an island the thing is the population would die out because after a generation or two they would lose fertility because they're lacking the essential nutrients you need to one to make make a baby and two just to be optimally healthy and so there's so many problems with that and it's sad because. These people mean, well, it's not easy to do a vegan diet. It's extremely Mm -hmm. difficult. And so they're very determined and they're being just misled by a lot of the kind of propaganda and different vegan people out in the space who are claiming that it's this holy grail of a diet. And one thing I'd love for you to touch on next is the issue that comes up with vegans is the environment. These greenhouse mm-hmm. gases and all of the things that are just downright wrong. If you read Lier Keith's book, uh, The Vegetarian Myth, I read a few years back, which is a yeah. fantastic expose on all these topics. But can you explain to folks how uh, grass-fed beef and, and cattle can actually be regenerative to the, the environment?
1: Yeah. Love Lear Keith. Love Weston Price. Weston Price, yeah, kind of game changer for me. Which is funny because that's the name of the movie that's going to come out to try to say that veganism is good. Uh, so, the environment is a huge topic. We've been going to film at a lot of farms. We've been around the country, North America and Canada, really looking into this. I've talked to some of the top scientists, Dr. Frank Mittloner, he's a greenhouse gas specialist. Um, At UC Davis, tons of people looking at this from all angles. I'm actually doing a debate with a vegan lady about this in Chicago soon at a food industry conference. So, I mean, it's a long story. So, uh, it's it's basically the opposite of what people tell you, right? They, they say, and cows are killing the environment. Uh, they're bad for the environment. They're, they're farting. They're, you know, making all this methane for one, they're actually belching and that they're actually good for the environment. The the soil health, this is good. Lear Keith talks about this, right? The, the soil health is really the important thing we need to think about. And that that really is, if you lose your soil health, you almost can lose your uh, your country, right? It's like these empires are, were built on the health of the soil. And when the soil health declines, the empire declines throughout history. So animals help build back the soil. Their their manure, their urine, their trampling around, they're even, even eating the grass. It stimulates the growth. So if you have animals on pasture, especially if you manage them well, which is a whole other story about rot- you can do rotational grazing or holistic management. You can look up Alan Savory, a great Ted talk by him and then Joel Salatin, an amazing farmer in West in Virginia, which we filmed with him as well, right? They're, they're promoting these ways of how animals should be on pasture, how they've always been on pasture throughout history. And what they and it builds the soil, right? This is we can measure this, right? You can measure the soil health, and doing agriculture like this builds the health. And then the opposite would be monocropping, right? And so this is what the alternative. I don't, I don't really understand these vegan people's arguments of like, oh, we'll get rid of the animals. It's like, okay, so what are we gonna? How are we gonna replace all this high quality protein? Are we gonna have you know monocrop fields of corn, wheat, and soy that has worst quality nutrition that's sprayed with glyphosate, which is ruining the land. It's ruining ecosystems. It's, you know, these monocropped fields are just taking away every, in you know, every single life form in the first, you know, miles and miles and just trying to grow one crop. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It would make sense is how we always raised animals, which is in like a mixed farming system, you know, for all of history up until, I don't know, 150 years ago, or I mean, there still was a lot of these mixed farms 150 years ago where you're using plants and animals together. So that's kind of the main, the main message is let's do things like we used to do it. Let's not do all plants in one place for, you know, a million acres and then all animals in one place for a million acres. Cause that's bad as well. We have all these chickens like stuck in a, uh, built like a warehouse. There's like a million chickens in one warehouse. Like that's not good. We're having, you know, a hundred thousand cows or I don't know, there's some giant farms out there. that just, that, they're just trying to get all these cows in one place. They're not on grass. Um, yeah, it's not good either. But then one more thing I'll throw in is that it, people have this idea of a feedlot. I want to support the way we do farming a little bit. Not that I, I, I think we should be doing feedlots and all this industrial farming for, for cattle or livestock, but it's actually working. It's pretty efficiently. Uh, it gives people who can't afford grass fed meat, a good nutritious option that I don't think is bad. People, some people think if it's factory farmed, it's it's automatically bad. It's like, no, I have visited some, I've seen it and seen videos. It's, It's not ideal, but it's not bad. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, just and just know that for the first two thirds of an animal's life, they're on pasture. These cows are on pasture no matter what. And then, yes, most of them do go to a feedlot, but this is only for four. Fed a lot of waste products, actually, a lot of these products aren't edible to humans they are eating forage. So, so grass for the first first two thirds of life, then they, on this feedlot, they could be getting other forages. They could be getting distillers, grain, right? These byproducts They could be getting corn husks, corn stalks, like other stuff that, that we were not using. So it's actually a pretty efficient system.
0: That's interesting uh, to hear your take on that. Cause I, uh, I I was aware that uh, cattle did live the first two-thirds of their life on pasture, regardless of how they were finished. But I didn't realize that some of the feedlots were doing things in a decent manner because I I think that's also where a lot of the uh, vegetarian and vegan community get their disdain for animal protein is by looking at these factory farms and feedlots that are doing things really poorly and feeding uh, terrible things to the cattle and keeping them in these confined operations, which, as you mentioned, it can be a decent option for people who have no other choice and simply can't afford grass fed meat. But I always urge people to just reprioritize their finances because spending a few extra bucks on a higher quality um, animal protein source is going to be better for the environment and it's going to really vote for your dollar. So it's going to be a push in the right direction so that grass fed meats does start to come down in price and more of these farms do start to raise their cattle till the end on pasture. So it really it goes back and forth, but it it is interesting to hear your take on the feedlot.
1: Yeah, no, you're completely right. It's a great message. And that's the message I always say is vote with your wallet too, right? Yeah, it, we, we need to. And it's working. I've talked to some big farmers that is like, hey, there's some big companies that you've heard of that he wouldn't say are coming to me. And because I do grass finish and they know that that's where the demand is going. And so they are looking into how to do it. So it is working. Um, that's a great message to reprioritize your finances because yeah, people think they can't afford it, but it's like, well, do you really need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z on the weekend when your health is more important and, or you could think of how much money you're saving with the uh, future health costs that you probably won't have to endure.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of ways to frame it differently. So people start to realize that, Hey, paying a couple extra bucks for some uh, grass-fed beef isn't actually expensive in the long run. It'll save you money in the long run. One Mm -hmm. other thing I'd love for you to touch on is, you you mentioned this briefly, but the ethical portion that a lot of people have, which is understandable. you know, If you really love animals, the thought of slaughtering animals in order for us to eat them can be kind of off-putting for some folks. But what they don't understand is how many innocent animals are killed every single day in these monocropping farms where they're growing soybeans and wheat and that how it's really more damaging to innocent animals than humanely uh slaughtering uh a cattle or a sheep
1: yeah that's very true and i didn't really understand this until i started looking into it so it's hard because the vegans they have or the anti-meat activists have the, a bigger platform they have more of this imagery and they have more i guess just <laughs> zeal for trying to spread this message And so we don't, the mainstream doesn't really hear this, that there's an Australian study that actually quantifies it, that the 25 more sentient beings die per kilogram of protein produced with plant foods, right? So 25 more times. So it's, there's field mice. I also looked up something else. There's, it's like in the billions, how many field mice and and that 80% of their population is destroyed with with monocropping, they're either killed immediately or displaced and then they starve and die or they get eaten by other animals. So so for one, directly, it's killing animals by harvesting these plant foods. Two, it's ruining ecosystems to create these monocrops. It's ruining even water, even just to irrigate, to get water to the crops, you're ruining entire streams and, and lakes and different aquatic systems. Oh, also, just like the dead zones, it creates all the runoff from from all the uh, glyphosate and other pesticides that are growing all these crops. So there's tons of that, and then there's also, uh, I mean, you can look at usable protein. Some a lot of these numbers are just really off too. So it's like if you're we're having to grow so much of these plants with this un. It's basically about twice as much. We have to grow plants to get the same amount of protein. So now, you know what I mean? No matter how you do the calculations, even if they try to say, oh, well, you know, cows take a lot of feed to to create this protein. Well, it's twice as by available, at, at least. I think it's probably more. And it's also, um, it doesn't have all the downsides of the plant foods. And also we can grass, if we grass finish them, a lot of it's just free. It's just grass and it's sun and it's water, it's rain. And also, um, oh, I forgot my last one. But basically you can eat an animal. If, If you wanted to eat one cow, you could eat one cow for a year, right? And you could kill one animal. And not that anyone really does that. I mean, I know I visited a farm with a great, lady who, who kind of does that herself. She just raises her own animals and eats them and that's it. Uh, you're only killing one animal, but if you're eating all these foods, if you're shipping in foods all of, from all over the world, there, there's a huge footprint to all that. And there's a huge amount of life lost. So to me, it seems like, I mean, maybe you could say I, I don't intentionally want to kill an animal or like, I just can't eat an animal directly. And, but uh, if you're a vegan, but at least if you admit that animals had to die, whether you like it or not, that's how the circle of life works. That's how we we kind of got disconnected from how life works. And so it seems to be like a lot of virtue signaling kind of where it's like, well, I'm vegan, you know, I'm above you because I don't eat meat. Well, you know, the sad reality is that there's going to be life loss no matter what. So...
0: No, that's so true. And it all comes down to how you frame it. So many folks out there are making these claims, which in some senses can be technically true to say, oh, you could get a complete amino acid profile by eating rice and beans. Well, technically, yes, you can, but the amount of some of those essential amino acids are so pathetic that functionally it's not a complete source of protein. Plus you're adding in so much additional starch. So it's a problem there. And same thing when they say you could get omega threes from plants. Well, that's not the type of omega-3 fatty acids we actually need. And many people don't convert it very well. Same thing with uh, beta carotene and vitamin A. So you can go through all these examples and counterpoints that many vegans will say and really just kind of break down to them that, listen, there's more to this story than you're believing. And many of the people you're listening to are only giving you their opinion and their side. And that distorts the entire picture. And that's what drives me crazy about this is, they're, they're really just getting misled and they are people that mean well, that are trying hard and really looking to improve their health. And it's, it's sad to see it kind of going down a bad rabbit hole and deteriorating. That's why people like you are putting out this accurate information is so, it, it's so inspiring and also really brings a smile to my face because it's <laughs> things people need to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why I
1: was thinking what, the, what's the best way to do this in the film Right. It's like, we've got to make a film. People want to just watch Netflix. They're not going to read a study. They're not going to, you know, do all the research that you and I have been doing for years and years and watching lectures and, you know, reading books and all this. They're going to want to just sit down and throw something on TV. So we just have to fight the wrong films that are being made. It's it's a lot of just these simplistic views that, like you said, that it's kind of the problem that you have to look deeper and so yeah, uh, that's that's kind of what we're doing here.
0: Yeah. And another thing I wanted to ask you Brian. So there's clearly a big push for this kind of anti-meat agenda. And this push for vegan diet. When you look at some of the nutritional recommendations, when you look at some of the things at the policy and the legislation le- legislative level, there is a clear kind of direct point to say, hey, avoid meat. There's all these studies that are being You know, epidemiological studies, they're being misconstrued to make it seem like meat is bad. So based on all the experts you've interviewed, why do you believe that there's this huge anti-meat agenda?
1: Mm, Well, that's a long story. If anyone's heard of Dr. Gary Fetke and his wife Belinda from Australia, they kind of trace it back to the 1800s. They believe it's this whole Seventh-day Adventist. It was kind of this religious movement that it got caught up. In meat being unpure. I think some of it, and they talk about this too, is some of it has to do with us leaving the farms, right? In the late 1800s, we're moving to the city. So now we lose touch with, for one, how animals are killed and, you know, how nature works. But we're also maybe getting spoiled meat, like the meat quality is not as good. We're trying to ship it in. We don't have refrigeration. We're, you know, carting it into the city. So, you know, maybe meat is making some people sick because it's rotten. So, so that, I think that's the very beginning of it. And then, yeah, it kind of goes on from there with John Avery Kellogg. And he, he was kind of caught up in the Seventh Day Adventist thing. And then he thought that meat was unpure. He thought that, you know, we should be eating these, grains and he's the one who invented cornflakes and there's a whole story there and then it kind of moved into the the early 1900s and we started getting heart disease and we're like what's going on you know and we started smoking we started doing so many other bad things we started getting all these vegetable oils in our diet we invented Crisco and margarine and and so then we started getting heart disease and it's the 40s and 50s and we're like huh like maybe we should blame meat on that you know, maybe it's red meat. It just, for, for all of history, we kind of just always use red meat as this scapegoat for our problems. And that, so, and it switches first it was unpure and it was like this kind of religious thing. And then it was, Oh, it's causes heart disease. And then we kind of figured out, Oh, it doesn't, we, we did some bad science and, and there's this whole Ansel Keys story about saturated fat and cholesterol, which we'll, we'll have in the film. And then they're like, so then it kind of moved well. I should stop. So that's how we kind of got into all this trouble, right? As we we said saturated fat is bad, cholesterol is bad, red meat's bad. So we need to do the opposite. We should be eating carbs, just high starch foods and vegetable oils. Miserable failure. Opened up the whole food industry thing. Now all this these the food industry gets a green light. Okay, we're gonna make all these processed low-fat foods. And, you know, we take the fat out and of course we have to, it tastes terrible. So we have to put sugar in. So now we're having all these food stuffed with sugar refined grains and vegetable oils, which back to Wes and a price are the, the three main things he found ruined people's health. Whenever they got those into their food system, they immediately lost their health in one generation. So now we're stuffing all our food with this, the, the proteins being diluted out, which is another story We're, we're you know, take the protein is a good thing. Helps keep you full, gets you all these bio, you know good nutrients. Taking that out, stuffing in sugar, refined grains, and vegetable oils—nightmare. Right when we get all this advice, is when the whole obesity and chronic disease epidemic really takes off. Then we start blaming. Then there's the, the kind of the '60s and the '70s, this kind of hippie revolu- revolution. Then we're blaming meat on the environment, right? Oh, meat's killing the environment. Diet for a Small Planet was a book that came out. All these kind of things of this idea that cows are killing the environment. Then that, then we we blame it on cancer. Then meat. Then uh, I guess more in the 90s and 2000s, we try to do these study uh, epidemiology. Like he's had this weak epidemiology to show, oh, the people who eat more red meat get more cancer. Well, I talked to the guy who was on that WHO panel. So this was a WHO working group that was in charge of figuring out if meat causes cancer and Dr. David Klerfeld is a USDA scientist who was on that panel and he got special uh, I guess uh, permission to do a podcast with me and explain kind of what went wrong what went on in this and for one he said a lot of them were vegans and vegetarians with with their own agenda right coming in so they were not unbiased and that there was they they looked at you know, something like 744 studies, and they just threw out most of them because they're inconclusive. And then they they focused on a few that that really tried to make uh, tried to show this correlation that meat was bad. Or they used some animal studies that tried to show that rodents you know got cancer because of the meat, which is a whole nother problem. For one, we're not rodents, and there's also the way they did the studies. So there's a lot to it. But basically, there is no convincing evidence and that there's only a very small, like 0.18 difference in the risk factor for consuming red meat or processed meat compared to not. Okay, so in that 0.18 risk factor, when you look at smoking, we did epidemiology and it was a 20 to 30 times risk factor, right? So this makes sense. So it's like we, we see 20 to 30 times more people getting lung cancer from smoking. Okay, we're getting 0.18 difference when people are eating red meat. And then you have to talk about, well, what are these people eating red meat also doing? It's called the healthy user bias where people who avoid red meat are having many other healthy behaviors. And we've studied this too, where the people who don't eat red meat, they follow their doctor's advice more. and They, they smoke less, they drink less, they exercise more, they do many other things. And so it's all confounded. Um, there is no hard science showing that meat causes cancer and that uh, uh, saturated fat or cholesterol are bad. Uh, the, so there's a huge story here that I <laughs> glossed over, but mainly it's that meat keeps getting blamed for different things and every decade it's something new. And then in, in reality, it's never true because meat is something we've been eating for all of history. It's something that made us human it makes no sense why this would be the problem when what about all these modern foods that are coming into our food system (laughs) obviously those are the problems that's what's changed this is what we haven't been eating for all history this is what is highly processed and has many problems of its own so
0: yeah it's unfortunate that people always seem to cherry-pick studies and research to demonstrate what they want to show and if you ask me, it has a lot to do with the special interest groups and f- big food conglomerates, because all you really have to do is follow the money. And mm-hmm. what you realize is that the people, these these big companies that are making the most money in the food system, they're putting out grains and vegetable oils and processed foods. And so the more people think that's good and the more people think meat is bad, the more money they make. And so that's the the problem is that then it kind of carries over and a lot of people, like you were mentioning, the gentleman with the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. are now putting out these massive media claims to back up what uh, ultimately the people that are funding their, cor- their companies. And if you look at the funding of the American Heart Association and the Dietetics Association, I mean, it comes from companies like Kellogg and General Mills and these big food conglomerates that are making cereals and crackers and bars and all the garbage that are making people sick absolutely
1: it's where the profit margin is i figured this out as i've tried to have a grass-fed meat company and know that there's no margin in there you can't make money there right like all the foods that are most nutritious have a short shelf shelf life are very expensive to produce and you don't make a lot of money where okay the opposite is stuff a bunch of cheap sugar refined grains and vegetable oils have a long shelf life have a box of cereal have a box of pasta make tons of money and then you have tons of money to do advertisements and marketing campaigns and just perpetuate this this message so 100% correct there
0: one one thing i did want to get your take on is the whole carnivore diet movement you know this is going from one extreme of veganism to the other extreme and when i first heard about this i thought it was pretty pretty ludicrous and you know we've never had an ancient civilization that was strictly carnivore even if there were some that relied Predominantly on animal protein, but then you listen to guys like um, in this carnivore movement, like Dr. Paul Saladino and others, that are making really compelling arguments as for why uh, little to no plant intake is quite advantageous. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, this is a big story too. That I'm friends with Paul; he's great, uh, and I love his ideas. It really shakes up your ideas of of you know what's healthy and what's not, and basically, also, I'm friends with Sean Baker, too. He's, he's you know, he's out there on social media, you know, yelling at vegans and doing all that. But it's really cool to get their kind of perspective and think about it. But I think of it kind of as a tool. I don't think it. I don't think we should be 100% carnivore. I, I may be 90%, right? But I don't think anyone's ever done should be doing 100%. I don't. I think that all populations throughout history have kind of always tried to get some other plant foods and they kind of know that there's some other nutrients they might be missing or, yeah, I just don't think we should go that extreme. Although I appreciate Saladino's arguments of, you know, you can get everything from, from animals. You can, it's in a bioavailable form, but well, maybe there's not enough of that nutrient, right? Even though it is bioavailable and there is vitamin C or other things in, in liver, but maybe you're not getting enough. Right. It's like, or so there's that. And then also I said, it's a tool. So I think, I think even veganism could be a tool. I don't think it's a good diet and I don't, I wouldn't use it as a tool, but there, there could be a situation where, I mean, if someone wants to go on a fast, maybe they want to do some kind of cleanse. And you could go vegan for a month. And like you said, people feel great in the beginning because you're getting rid of so many things. But you're also not getting enough nutrients and you're not you're going to be, I think you're going to be, well, I know you're going to be losing your own muscle mass. If you're not getting enough bioavailable protein, you lose weight because you're actually losing muscle mass, lean, lean muscle mass as long as fat mass. So it can be used as a tool. But so carnivore can be used as a tool. I'm also friends with a woman named Laura Spath. People can look up on social media. She had an amazing transformation story. She she looks like a completely different person. Some people don't even believe it's the same person. She was you know two eighty and now she's like one forty, right? She looks great and she used a carnivore diet. She tried a keto diet. She tried all these different diets. It didn't work because some people have food addiction, right? Some people have these different problems. And if they the only thing that worked for her was to go one hundred percent animal foods and that they, it kind of killed off all her gut bacteria that would, that wanted these carbs and this sugar and she lost her addiction to carbs and sugar. And that's what worked for her. And she spent a whole year and I get lost. Yeah. 140 pounds. So she, and she kept planning to cheat. It was really interesting. She's like, I'm going to cheat. You know, me and my husband, we're going to, you know, go on our anniversary. We're going to have something else. They didn't do it. So, Oh, it's Christmas. Didn't cheat. Right. It was like, it really is powerful. It worked for them. And then another just quick story, people like Michaela Peterson, right? These autoimmune issues, like a lot of people could use a completely carnivore diet to heal their gut completely and have no plant foods, no, you know, really let their gut heal. But then I I mean, I just don't think we should do that for life, right? It's like no population did that for their whole life. It's, it's just a tool. Let's heal your gut. I think there's a time and place for it, but we're, we're living in a modern world too. It's just, do you really want to just be like a hundred percent carnivore? Like Paul's just like a crazy guy. Like he's, he's like slapping coffee out of my hands. I'm like, come on, Paul, like I'm drinking coffee. Like <laughs> you got to calm down at some point.
0: Yeah. I'm completely with you on that, Brian. I think these, I, I like to term them therapeutic diets. You know, the, the ketogenic diet a strict keto diet where you're eating up to 90% pure fat, mm-hmm. can be very therapeutic, but it's not a good long-term strategy to eat like that every day for years on end. Same goes with carnivore and how it could be helpful with autoimmune conditions. And same goes for vegan. If you look at Walter Longo's work in the fasting mimicking diet and doing a, a vegan calorie restricted diet for five days can have amazing benefits in doing that once or twice a year, but these diets aren't balanced and they aren't really good long-term strategy. while I do think that we should all minimize starches and sugars like a ketogenic diet, and I think we should all get plenty of high quality animal protein like a carnivore diet, it's not just all one or the other. You have to find balance. You have to find what works best for you and uh, the right combination of plants and animal foods. But a carnivore diet does seem to be like it could be a good reset because then you can introduce plant foods in one at a time and recognize which ones are causing issues because it could be that you're not react- you're reacting to kale. It could be that you're having trouble with nightshades like tomatoes. It could be that you're having trouble with some other vegetable or plant food that you're eating that's supposedly healthy for most people, but your body has a sensitivity or reaction to it. So for that reason, since it's such a strict elimination diet, it can be a really useful tool in recovering from certain issues.
1: Yeah, you're right on there. And And one more quick thing. Yeah, I think I did have problems with kale and spinach. I was on this whole bandwagon of, you know, kale shakes and blending all this stuff. And I did that for years. And yeah, I felt better initially, because of course, I'm getting all this good stuff. I'm cutting out bad stuff. But I mean, a lot of oxalates. And now I started eliminating oxalates and little things are kind of clearing up. So...
0: Yeah, I'm right there with you. I used to eat these big ass salads for lunch every day thinking, oh man, I'm going to load in so many leafy greens and cucumbers, onions, tomatoes, Mm -hmm. you name it. And I found that I was just getting real bloated and it's really hard to digest all that raw vegetable fiber. And that's what people also don't really recognize is that fiber can be kind of a double-edged sword. You know, Mm -hmm. some people benefit from from it, but I've worked with a lot of clients where taking fiber out of their diet resolves their digestive issues. And so it's really hard on the digestive system. And I find now I stick, instead of a big ass salad with a can of sardines on top. I have two cans of sardines and maybe a avocado or some organic uh, wild blueberries or something of that uh, along those lines, which I just tend to work much better with my digestive system. And I feel far better than when I eat these massive volumes of vegetables. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I do the same sardine salad, same thing. And I kind of reverse, it. I'm like, yeah, I'll do more sardines and yeah. Uh, Maybe just like some cut up cucumbers, you know, if I want that and put some balsamic vinegar and like you get the sardines, it's great.
0: Yeah. Load up a lot of olive oil. It's it's all good stuff. Well, I'd like to, yeah, in closing, I wanted to ask you, so based on all your, your research and interviews and everything you've learned over the last several years, uh, is there any, Big takeaways that you want to leave with the audience in closing?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, for biggest thing, just question things, right? Question what you hear on TV, what you see on social media. What question me, right? I don't have it all figured out. I'm trying, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like science. People think science is hard science, right? There is hard science and math and physics, right? We we it's discrete, but just know that nutrition science is not a hard science. That we're going to kind of maybe look back in 20 years and think, you know, we're crazy, but I think we're on the right track with this ancestral diet. All the stuff we've talked about makes sense evolutionarily. So, uh, I guess, yeah, think, think evolutionarily too. Right. So think about our ancestors and, you know, we're not going to go back and live in caves, but if it's pretty simple logic you can do is just think, what we would have gotten back then, how we evolved that, you know, 99.9% of our evolution was in, in one way and now we're in a completely different way. And um, yeah, eat densely, move intensely. <laughs> like I said in the beginning, that, that's that's the, my message. Great advice, man. I love it. When's, when's your documentary Food Lies coming out? Ooh, good question. We wrapped on filming, but there's a lot of editing to do we want to do a lot of graphics we want to make this really cool looking really easy to understand right a lot of this stuff needs visuals it needs you know it's like how does this work how does? I, i'm not i don't want to just throw something out there i want to do something amazing so i'm saying next year we're going to get out as soon as possible
0: awesome well definitely everyone listening in keep an eye out for brian's documentary i know i will and in the meantime where can people go to support your work?
1: Yeah, foodlies.org. So that's where the documentary can be found. You can pre-order on go. and just search Food Lies anywhere. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, trying to put stuff out daily. So Food Lies, just search for it.
0: And definitely check out his podcast, Peak Human. I know I've really been enjoying listening to those episodes.
1: Awesome, yeah, thanks for that, yeah.
0: All right, good chatting with you, Brian.
1: All right, thanks so much. I'll see ya.
0: Thanks for listening in. You can find the show notes and resources at thrivingwellness.co slash podcast. We encourage you to share your biggest takeaways with us on social media and share the show with your friends and family. If you found this episode valuable, leave us a five-star review. Your feedback helps to support us on our mission to positively impact as many people as we can with this information. Join us for our next episodes where we will be interviewing leading wellness professionals to inspire you in your health journey. Until next time.